0: Remember when your new life in Christ began? How many can remember? Such love, such wondrous love, such love, such wondrous love. Life was amazing, and all day long, it's going to date some of you a bit. You were singing the old prayer chorus by Gary Oliver. Celebrate, Jesus, celebrate. Celebrate, Jesus, celebrate. He is risen. He is risen and he lives forevermore. And then you go, come on and celebrate. Now you're supposed to get excited. We're dancing now, right? We're filled with joy. Maybe some of you got to get back to, he touched me. Oh, he touched me. And all the joy that floods my soul. Something happened and now I know he touched me. And made me whole. Well, you probably have your own type of songs that excited your spirit and your soul. And in those days, we were dancing on cloud nine with steps that would make John Travolta and staying alive and Saturday night for you shameful. We had our own three-piece white suits as we were floating there on cloud nine with Jesus. All the joy came flooding in our souls, and it was because of God's seeking grace, God's saving grace, God's sanctifying grace, and God's sustaining grace that took us to the third heaven that Paul was speaking about. So there we were, joyfully on cloud nine, dancing up a storm that would even make King David jealous, but we kept our clothes on, because we're Nazarenes, right? David undressed himself, and suddenly we begin to realize that we are descending quickly from that cloud our parachute release button doesn't work a thorn has burst the bubble of our celebration and our parachute and major tom is calling ground control and he says houston we have a problem i know what you're thinking i thought we were celebrating i thought we were undefeatable i thought we were like the titanic unsinkable but i think this passage from paul Calls us to have a reminder check. We're still in between the already and not yet of God's kingdom coming to full fulfillment. Right? No one has fully arrived to our final destination except Jesus Christ. He's the only person that has died and was raised from the dead. Everyone else that has died is still waiting for that resurrection day. So we shouldn't think of them as already having attained that. No one has that. And that's why Paul says to the Romans, we are closer to the day of our salvation than the first day that we have begun. And God will complete whatever he has begun in our lives on that day. But the kingdom of God is here. And this journey of grace is a jagged, broken journey of grace. Because we still live in this broken world. We went from cloud nine to planet earth in a flash. We went from no one's going to burst my bubble to help. Lord, I need your mercy. I'm drowning. As we descend back to reality, we're thinking, is life in Jesus all it's been promoted to be? I don't know. Anybody thought that? Come on, be honest. The Lord knows. One small thorn has caused us to descend from our place in the third heaven, the attack of the thorn was like a bat of hell. And it was because it was a messenger of Satan, according to Paul. And you finally realize when you come to your senses that you're not in Kansas anymore. You wake up from your dream and realize that suffering is still part of this Christian journey. It's not a badge of our journey. It's part of it. do not to say I suffer more than you. Look how holy I am. No, it's part of it because we live in this place called Earth. So, some questions: How does hurting and suffering relate to being holy and joyful? Shouldn't believing put some wall of protection around us? Doesn't the Psalmist says that, "Thou, O Lord, are our shield about me; you are the lifter of my head; you are the one that restores my dignity." Is our faith being mocked when we need it most, and the people are look, look, look at those weak Christians? Uh, as the outside world looks in. Isn't God's reputation suffering when those dedicated to the divine are bleeding and grieving and persecuted and dis- dying despite their faith in Him? You, know, you can ponder those throughout the message this morning. and Just hold your thought for a while. Because it's time to recap our journey thus far. The journey of grace has been an all-encompassing for, travel for us over the last several weeks. We come to recognize that it's not just one trip to the altar, as Pastor Betty tried to make known, but it's a continued journey to God, seeking God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our spirit, all of us. It's an invitation to get close to Him, to be transformed by Him, to grow in Him, and to be commissioned, as she read Isaiah chapter 6, to go out into the world, and that commissioning is for everyone not just pastors and leaders. We talked about the grace that comes before, the prevenient grace, the seeking grace of God. God comes to you first. God made the world. God created Adam and Eve. Even when Adam and Eve fell, God went to them. They didn't go to God. God comes to you. We talked about the saving grace of God that makes us new creatures in Christ. Behold, the old has gone and the new has come It transforms us holistically. We talked about the sanctifying grace of God that empowers us, enables us to live faithfully, obediently, and wholly unto Him. It's about our character and our growth, or our growth and character, to say it another way, that we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, and that mirror will reflect if you are growing or not if you look at your life's journey. We talked about sustaining grace, the grace that moves us forward. It keeps us. The best thing to understand the difference between a Calvinism and a Armenian is to buy the book by I.H. Marshall, we are kept by the power of God as he exposes the weaknesses on both ends of that spectrum. We're in a marathon, not a sprint. We realize that there's more work for God to do and we want to be vessels cracked as we are in the hands of a... God who is the potter. So today we're going to talk about God's sufficient grace. Our ancient passage comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul. It's in the second letter to the Corinthians, as Wendy has read. And Paul has been defending his ministry. Because the people in Corinth, even though it's a church that he founded, he established... He wept over, he cried over, he poured his guts over that church. Somehow they have fallen for the super apostles who seem to have no problems and seem invincible. They're still on cloud nine. They haven't descended yet, so they think. Then Paul uses some irony in our passage to vindicate himself. From Paul's writings, we learn that suffering haunts all humans sooner or later And when it does, it raises difficult questions, even for a devoted Christian. Here's Paul with that thorn in the flesh and the suffering that he's gone through in his ministry. So don't be surprised when suffering comes your way. But if we look at this in the context of the city of Corinth and the Greco-Roman culture, their belief was that the social ascent was the goal of anyone that was seeking importance in their life. In other words, all the social ladder that we have to climb to become, you know, from the factory floor to the CEO, that was their goal. That's what they thought. They were boasting in self-display and personal power and glory, and, and that is the atmosphere that has affected the church in Corinth, because that's what they were raised up. So we have this church in Corinth being influenced by teachers who had given the idea that they could aspire to higher standards of wisdom higher levels of spiritual attainment to more dramatic experience in the spirit to greater triumphs of the gospel. This is a Pentecostal church, hallelujah. It's a charismatic church, right? It's not a deadbeat holiness church. These guys are excited. They want all this experience. In the corner, someone's speaking in tongues, and somebody's trying to prophesy. That's who Paul is speaking to. Remember that as I go on. So they're in a mood with these super apostles that have it all. Sounds familiar? It's the same bait that seduces the church today. The same bait. Our, look, our local churches look boring compared to what we survey on social media in the tube. They got all the fancy lights and all the gadgets and all the smoke machines going up to create some nimbleous cloud of God. There's nothing wrong with that. Listen to Old Church Basement by Dante Bowie and you understand where he's going with that Have an idea. But to put your energy and that is what God's Spirit is doing. It can be an instrument but it's not it. So they're, they're in Corinth and they're looking for a more exciting, more younger, more super apostle. Maybe a little bit more hair. Maybe a little bit less belly, maybe a little bit more muscle, a little bit more mass appeal. (laughs) And here we have Paul. He just got out of the joint. You know what joint means? It means he just got out of prison. He just got out of prison. And he's coming back to the church that he founded. And he was in prison because he was preaching about the gospel of suffering of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he's got a thorn in his flesh. That means in his humanity, in his being, he has a thorn given to him by a messenger of Satan. And that's not going over well in Corinth. Because they want the white pastor with the mass appeal. The one with a little bit more hair, a little bit less belly, a little bit more muscle. That's what the Corinthians wants. It's a church that looks on the outward appearance. It's a shame in our day that we have pastors that fantasize about bigger stages. One day I'll get to preach at the General Assembly in Indianapolis. Who cares? One day, one day I'm going to have a trillion viewers on Facebook. Who cares? What happened to the longing to make yourself go into that prayer call? Study the Word of God. Pray the Word of God. And say, this is what the Lord says to us today. And churches aren't any better when they're interviewing for pastors. They want headline hunters. They want platform heroes, eloquent speakers, and personality. That's the Achilles heel of the church. We're looking and basing the Spirit's move on appearances and not on what is taking place in our hearts. And how we are growing in character to reflect the image of God to a broken world. In other words, there are thorny afflictions on the journey of grace. Hello? Maybe I just burst some of your bubbles today because you thought the journey in Christ was painless. It's not, it's painful. It's painful. So we have Paul in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11, before our passage that was read, he begins to give his testimony in comparisons to the testimony of the super apostles, and the super pastors, and the super teachers that are in Corinth, in chapter 11, verse 23 to 33, and if you want to read some more, you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 to 12 on your own time, but this is chapter 11 before our passage was read today. And this is what Paul says. Are they ministers of Christ? I am talking like a madman. I'm a better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless floggings, and often near death. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers and danger from bandits and danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters and toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked, and besides other things, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and am I not weak? Who is made to stumble, and am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be he forever, knows that I do not lie. In Damascus, the governor of King Architus guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Wow. That's not what the Corians want to hear. They want to hear, give me another spiritual experience. Give me another vision from the Lord. Give me another dream from the Lord. Give me another word of interpretation from the tongues you are speaking, Paul, because he spoke in tongues more than anyone else, he said. And Paul gives him this, this outline. He's not eloquent, and he's definitely not a wuss to go through that. He's not truly a weakling, but he was broken. He was broken. They accuse Paul instead of being a fool. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1? The Corinthians have exchanged the gospel of the cross of suffering for the gospel of success, and the church is doing the same. The gospel of the cross and suffering, for the gospel of the cross ends of success. See, the gospel of sex, success seeks to avoid suffering, not embrace it. You think anyone that's suffering, they must have sinned. They have to be sinning, because look how they're suffering. Paul sees the suffering and weaknesses as strengths, but the super apostles believe otherwise. Remember I told you about the Greek-Roman culture, that it was the social ascent, that ladder that you climb to success to become a CEO, you know, to become popular, to be you know, known by everyone, to have the biggest stage? That was Paul before his conversion. Remember that he went around killing the early church Christians, the followers of Jesus, the disciples of grace? And how he just snuffed them up and he murdered them before he came to that place on, the, on his way to Damascus and he met the risen Lord. And from that moment on, his view changed upside down. No longer was he trying to be a super follower of God Almighty, of Yahweh. He finally realized that it's in weaknesses, the weaknesses of his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ where truth and real strength is found. At times in our broken, jagged journey of grace, we end up like Paul with a thorn that we can't pray away. Anybody know what I'm talking about? A thorn that we can't pray away. Oh, we tried. I know there's some in the crowd who believe, just name it and claim it a prosperity gospel and puff the magic dragon, the thorn is removed. Good luck on that for everything. Paul the Apostle, to Gentiles, man of God, writer of a large portion of the New Testament scriptures, three times that we know about, that we know about, prayed that it will be taken away, and thank God he didn't name what it was, but I think it's already in the passage so that he will not become elated, full of pride, big-headed, egg-headed, eagle, right? And guess what? It was still there. But that's not even the real miracle of the story that's happening that Paul is trying to get across to us. Not only that it's still there, he accepted it. He accepted the thorn in the flesh that God gave him from self-boasting in himself. Because he did away with that life on Damascus Road experience with Jesus. And he put that life behind. So he said, I can live with this thorn, because I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep me until that day. And he understood that God's grace is sufficient. Do you? Do you? See, Paul was not into boasting about his superpowers and experience. So he begins to tell a story similar to the super apostles, but a certain twist that we had read about this man caught up in the third heaven, whether in body or of body, I do not know, but we know he's talking about himself. So Tom Wright begins to invite us into this story, and he begins to say, the teachers would have liked what many people today call an up-to-date testimony. What has been happening in your spiritual life this week? You can feel their expectations building up as Paul tells the story of this satanic messenger that has come to trouble him. They like spiritual warfare talk, just like some of you do. Surely Paul, the teachers would have said, it can't be God's will for you to have such a thing. Remember, they think like a lot of people, just say, poof, and it's gone, right? Claim the victory over, Jesus, over Satan, rather, in Jesus' name, and you'll get rid of it, Paul. Remember, this is a charismatic church. They're on the edge of their seats as Paul's telling the story because they're waiting for the punchline, and it's been taken away in the strong name of Jesus. But guess what? That's not what happens, does it? And Paul says, I got a word from the Lord. And they're expecting the thorn in the flesh is taken care of. But Paul had a different word from the Lord, didn't he? Remember what God said in James chapter 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Church needs to be reminded of that again. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So he's got them on the edge of their seats. He's got the word of the Lord, a direct word, from God to Paul to tell the Corinthians. And the Lord tells the Apostle Paul, my grace is enough for you. Then he says, my power comes to perfection in weakness my grace is enough for you is God's grace enough for you this morning whatever you're going through whatever brokenness is in your life do you realize that God's grace is enough for his power comes to perfection and we've been saying that perfection means it comes to its goal it's telos it's maturity, it's completion. It comes in God's power working that perfection in my weakness, in my fallen humanity. God's perfection is working through me and you. It's Nothing about performance and dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and checking all the checklists. It's about God's power being allowed to work in your life even with a thorn, Even with a thorn. Then he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Paradigm shifting. Remember the culture? The strong are mighty. The weak, cast them away. The children you don't want, cast them. Put them in a heap of pile and let them burn. Who needs them? That's the culture that Paul is speaking to. And he's saying the complete opposite. Those that are weak in Christ are stronger than those that are thinking that they are strong in themselves. What happens when the thorn doesn't go away in your life? Come on, let's be honest with each other. We all got thorns, but we know people that do have thorns in their life that's been deflating all the joy from them, all the excitement in their hearts, all the reason for life. What happens when people we know that have mental health, it doesn't go away, it doesn't get healed? The more we pray for them, it seems the worse it gets. I know this from personal experience with my own family members. What happens to the person that you were praying up a storm for gets worse and even dies? And you begin to shake your head. Why, Lord, why? And it's okay to ask the why question because you don't need all the answers. God, all, all God wants you to do is want you ask Him and live with whatever's handed to you. What happens to you when after 40 years of successfully running a business, it goes bankrupt? Poof, God. You know, you had a boat and you had a couple of Cadillacs, and then the next week, you got nothing. Five cents in your pocket. And that's pretty bad for this age, isn't it? What happens to you when after 30, 40, 50, 60, how many years you've been married, your spouse wakes up one morning and says, I want to leave you? What do you do with that? And You tried. You prayed, God, can you speak to us? Can you bring reconciliation? Can you bring healing? There's this line from the cultish movie, not because it's a cult of Satan, just cultish because it's faddish, okay? The Princess Bride. And somebody goes up to the prince and says, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says different is selling you something. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who is saying something different is selling you something. God forgive the church for trying to say that the journey in Christ and the discipleship of Christ is painless. God forgive us for communicating that to the outside world. God forgive us for thinking that life in Christ was painless when he suffered so much pain for you and me that we can be set free. Where did you ever get an idea of a painless Christianity? Ann Voskop, and we did a study of hers a few years when we first got here called The Broken Way in a video series. We also read her book, her first book, Thousand Gifts. She wrote an article on her blog recently, Why Do We Suffer? When you want to avoid suffering, that's a good question. But the suffering won't stop. Won't stop. Paul didn't stop praying, yet the three times he took it away until the word of the Lord came directly to him. She shares about her recent tragedy of losing her dad, and just bear with me as I read her description. It's a lot bigger article. After being crushed under a tractor trailer. Tyre which led her to a fever of 103 and hospitalization in the midst of a COVID pandemic in southern Ontario during their third lockdown. She writes, my heart is broken. And Those that read the book know where she's going with this as she explains why her heart is broken and her fever went to 103.5. My dad was killed in the very same farmyard as my little sister. Both of them crushed to death in the very same way, underneath moving tires. My heart is broken for the same violent trauma that's haunting our stunned and bruised family all over again. Like a black stocking dog that we somehow can't shake. My heart is broken over the fact that now my body seems to be breaking down in an inferno of feverish pain. And I want the trauma for my kids, for my mama to stop. I want the drama for my story to stop. I want the story to turn a page and the story to turn around and all our heartbreak to be overturned. The father died in the same way her little sister died when she was young. Imagine going through that a second time in the same place. And this is what spoke to me. And I think Paul talks about it. Therefore, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, I am strong. She said these words that you don't hear often when we try to counsel people that are hurting and grieving. She says, but what I don't want is closure. Hello? Now, that threw me right off. Because isn't that what we say? You got closure now. Go on with life. No, no. Listen to what she says. Because the truth is, how can a heart that's been cracked open ever have closure? How can a heart that's been pulled apart by the pain that we suffer in this life ever have closure? Then she began to say, maybe non-closure is the way to stay open to real living. Suffering cracks, opens the heart to tenderly see and truly stand with the ache of all humans. Suffering doesn't mean you're cursed. Hello, anybody thinking that way, that you're cursed because you're suffering? Suffering means you're human. <laughs> it means you're human. And regardless of what the Instagram and all the glossy ads are shilling, all your suffering isn't some unique anomaly. Suffering is the universal experience of all humankind. Oh, Paul says, I'm content. It doesn't mean he has closure. He's he's still alarmed or awakened by the memories that he experienced. The question, she goes on to say, isn't, why is there brokenness and suffering in my life? Isn't that the question we ask? Why is there brokenness and suffering? The question she finally realized in the midst of her pain is why wouldn't there be suffering because such is life in a broken world? This world is not fixed. This world is broken. All you have to do is look at the news channel and say, what a mess we live in. What a mess we live in. The lie that your life is supposed to be heaven on earth and suffering can be a torturous hell for people. Looking for that closure, but never having that closure. It's not the point of having that closure. It's letting God move in your brokenness, in your non-closure, where grace comes penetrating through these cracked vessels that we are until the day God calls us. Suffering isn't a problem, but part of our earth's daily lifestyle. Yes. God's grace is amazing. Seeking, saving, sanctifying, sustaining. But it's also sufficient. It's sufficient. Sufficient for us. Sufficient grace is the strength we find in God when facing our greatest struggles. Anybody there? You got to be honest before God. You got to say to the Lord, I don't have closure, I don't have this, but I need your sufficient grace to work in my life. It will get you to where God longs to have you. Paul's point is weaknesses, infirmity, inability do not keep God from accomplishing his purposes in people's lives. What did Betty read about Isaiah? He was grieving because King Uzziah died. And he said, who in the heck is going to lead us now? And there, in the midst of his brokenness, in the midst of his non-closure, God invaded the soul of Isaiah and gave him a holy, heavenly vision of a holy, holy, holy God, a thrice God. It is Trinity Sunday this week, and he commissioned him to go out into the world to share that the Lord is the Lord of heaven and earth. And that's why when people used to pray like this, it was the joining of heaven and earth, not meant to be separated, but meant to be joined together as we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Who cares about spiritual revelations and super-apostleship and visions if the community of God cares more for status, self-righteousness, and prestige and views on the social media than it does for the cross and suffering of Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah! This is a Pentecostal church here in Corinth. For Paul, the truth of the gospel is God's grace is sufficient. Remember when uh, David got caught in sin? Then he p- praised that beautiful Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, O oh God. If you go a little bit lower, longer in that Psalm, it says, "A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you would not despise. Broken and contrite heart, you do not despise." I'm here to say that God's sufficient grace is revealed amongst life's thorns. Hello? I waited all this time before I broke into a low so I won't repeat it. God's grace is revealed amongst life's thorns. It isn't merely a fix-it-for-every issue. Grace is found, discovered, amongst the fragile crack jars and persistent thorns in humanity's life. There's a beautiful line from Leonard Cohen's song, Anthem. There is a crack in everything that's how the light gets in. How many people know that song? Leonard Cohen, no? You just know the Hallelujah one by him? There's a light in everything. That's how the light gets in. There's a, uh, there's a crack in everything, rather. There's a crack in everyone, and that's how the light of the Holy Spirit gets in. Jed Stark asked the question, what does grace do and doesn't do? Let's start with the dozens. Grace doesn't remove the memories. They're supposed to remind you of what you were before. I knew who I was before Christ, and I know who I am in Christ. And I know the journey that he took me in Christ and before Christ. It doesn't exempt us from the damage. The damage is done. Neil Neil Young said that a long time. The needle and the damage done. You can't get away from that. It doesn't extract the sorrow. There's still pain in some places. But God's sufficient grace carries me through. Amen? This is what it does do. It reframes our story. From mourning to dancing. From weeping to joy. And God does work in cracks. I'm an example of that. I'm an example. God does work with crack pots and pour His Spirit into us. He does deepen intimacy. We get closer to Him in the journey of grace. And he does reveal its source, God the Father, in Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. See, the world's slogans are, I can make it happen. I'll just try harder. I have what it takes. The biblical example is: I need you, Lord. I'm lost without you, Lord. I can do nothing without you, Lord. Big difference, big difference. We cannot use God as a tool to have life on our own terms. I like what this guy said. God doesn't give us what we can handle. God helps us handle what we are given. That's sufficient grace. God helps us handle. Going back to Ann Voskop, she writes in the midst of her brokenness. Remember, she doesn't want closure. But she understands something so profound in our life in Christ and our journey in Christ says, God's promises never claim we won't be afflicted. Is that a wake-up call to anyone? God's promises never claim we won't be afflicted. His, he promises we will never be evicted from God's presence. Be still and know that I am God. God never promised that I will never be afflicted or suffer anything in life, but he does promise that I, he will never be evicted from evicting his presence from my experience in my walk with him, okay? Never be evicted from God's presence. Isn't that what Emmanuel is all about? God does not take away our vulnerability. He enters into it. Jesus Christ came from a place where there was no light. I mean, no night, no night. And he entered a place where there was broken and full of darkness. He entered into our vulnerability so that he can heal us and prepare us for his coming. Right? He didn't take it away. The Apostle Paul learned from Jesus that God's timeline to deliver is not in accord with what we desire. Did you get that? God's timeline to deliver is not in accord with what I want God to do, my time. So my timeline versus God's timeline. Can you learn from Jesus? Didn't Jesus go to the Father and says, Take this cup from me, this cup of suffering? Then he had to pray, not my will, your will be done. Right, And Paul, when he accepted what the Lord told him, that his grace is sufficient for him and that God's power is perfected in his weakness, he basically said the same thing, your will be done, Lord. I cried, I prayed three times, Jesus prayed three times, but now I've come to accept whatever pain comes my way in this life. I know, Lord, your grace is sufficient for me. Jesus also was inflicted with thorns in his life. They even put a crown of thorns on his head. But the holes that they made in his head were exchanged for a crown of glory that he received that made spaces for jewels for him to wear as the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. Jesus and the Apostle Paul are not so much concerned with the Roman Empire and its lords and its God. Because the people of God know there's only one king, there's only one Lord, and his name is Lord God Almighty and his son Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. They rule the heavens and the earth, not the nations. Christ's deficiency is sufficient for my deficiency. Are you good with that? So don't panic or feel utterly swept away by waves of abandonment because the Lord tells all of us through the word, of the Apostle Paul, through his word to the Apostle Paul, my grace is enough for you. My power comes to perfection in weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's what you need to know. Paul has no sugarcoating, no braggadocha talk here. He has no prosperity gospel here. He's just full of honesty, joy, and hope and love. In a nutshell, he's saying these words, God never abandons us. Hello? God never abandons us. As the worship team comes up, I don't know how honest you want to be with yourself, with your brokenness, with your pain, with your suffering with your journey that you're looking for closure. Well, maybe closure is not really what you need. You need more of God's sufficient grace to be experienced at this moment through the Holy Spirit. Maybe you feel God's abandoned you. Abandoning you in your life. Am I here to tell you and retell you and retell you and tell you again that God never abandons us? And sometimes you have to think that there is a church here for your benefit. You know that? This is not about individual only. And this comes from a a lady called Trish Harrison Warren. She wrote Liturgy of the Ordinary and Prayer in the Night. And she was going through some really tragic times in her life. And she wrote these words, and that's why church is important. And gathering as the church is even more important. When I could not pray, the church says, here are my prayers. Here are their prayers. When I could not believe, the church says, come to the table and be fed of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I could not worship, the church sang over me the language of faith. Anyone know what she's talking about? God's grace. Grace is sufficient for us all. Let's pray before we sing this song.